oxbeef, pork, poultry, seafood, cheese items, and, and portion cut steaks to the food service industry, hotels, restaurants, and institutions. Welcome to BizCast Greater Lacrosse, a weekly podcast from Biz News. We bring you news from the business community. I am your host and founder, Vicki Markison. Today, I have the pleasure of having Mike Bacalars. I, I said, what's your title? And he's owner, president, CEO, along with your wife, Bethany. So you are a multi-generation company, though. You're not the first Bacalars running this. That is true. Uh, my grandfather and his brothers uh, started the company back in 1935 as a small corner grocery store on Mississippi Street. And over the years, my two uncles wound up owning the business. And back in 1990, I moved to La Crosse and worked for my uncle Glenn and worked for him for 13 years. And then my wife, Bethany, and I had the opportunity to buy the company in 2013 or 2003. So it's been 20 years already. Wow. So, yeah. And so you started out as a grocery store. You're now just specializing in sausage, correct? We have grown and evolved into a company that has two divisions. We have a retail sausage division, which is a distributor-based manufacturing model, which is comprised of the Schweiger brand, which we purchased from the Cargo Corporation back in 2016. And then we have a DS, which is in the business called the direct store delivery business, which comprises of the Bacalars brand, which uh, we sell more locally within about 120 mile radius of La Crosse. And we have a sales force that goes out and, and sells the product. And then we have our own trucks deliver it. And then that also includes our food service division, which we sell ox, beef, pork, poultry, seafood, cheese items, and, and portion cut steaks to the food service industry, hotels, restaurants, and institutions. Now, that's the piece I didn't know about. Got it. So how does a company, let's start with the history. How does a company go from being a grocery store to what you are now? And how long did it take? That's a great question. I, I, I guess it would be out of necessity in order to grow and continue to have a thriving business, you need to change and take business and market opportunities that are out there. And as the grocery store business became consolidated, if you just drive around La Crosse, you can see the old buildings that have the window storefronts. All those were old grocery stores. I remember my grandfather saying, geez, we had 35 accounts on the south side alone where he was selling our sausage products to all the local markets. And as over time, the grocery business became consolidated, there was less room for the smaller independents, and he felt that the opportunity was in the wholesale side of the business. So we evolved into being more of a distributor and manufacturer than actually the retailer. And then we also got into the food business over time and became uh, portion cutting steaks and chops and distributing boxed beef and pork to, to restaurants and institutions, hospitals, nursing homes. So you went from grocery store, were you a wholesaler of all groceries or were you really specializing in meat at that point? Specializing in meat at that point. They had a strong following with their meat department in their little grocery store. My grandfather was a salesman, Ray, and his brother, Frank, actually started out in the meat business with Farley Sausage Company. And when they decided to buy a grocery store at a sheriff's sale, Back in 1935, the two of them got together and then their brother Ted also joined the business. 
And Ted was a sausage maker. My my grandpa was a salesman and Frank was the meat cutter. So between the three of them, they were able to work it out and they each had their own specific role and they were able to bring that to the business. And that's how they evolved and grew. Amazing. And so when did the location on the south side along there? On, on South Avenue in 1962, they, the original building on Mississippi Street, they had outgrown that that facility and uh, we're looking for bigger buildings, a uh, bigger opportunity. And the, the sisters, uh, the Franciscan sisters wanted to buy the property to where the Viterbo Fine Arts Building is now, was right in that area. So they wanted to acquire that property. So it was an opportunity to, to sell the property and move. And the building that was on South Avenue was abandoned at the time. It was sitting empty and it had previously been part of the gun brewery. And when they closed during Prohibition, that was an armory for the 32nd Division. So it was sitting empty, and my grandfather brought it from uh, Leo Murphy and the Gateway Transportation Company and turned it into to Bacalar Sausage Company. Interesting. So they outgrew the space on Mississippi in 1962. They bought the location on South Avenue. Any idea roughly how many employees were there? Maybe 12. And was this just servicing the lacrosse area at that point? Yes, yes. Okay. So things started moving because obviously people heard how large you are now. You're acquiring other companies. So how did that progress from 1962 for Bacalars? We became more and more specialized in in sausage manufacturing and center of the plate protein for one. And as my grandfather retired, my two uncles wound up taking over the business and continued to build on on what they had started, uh, my grandfather and his brothers. And so, like I said, over the years, we've been able to take advantage of opportunities within our industry to grow and to specialize and, and take advantage of those opportunities. So... You have your uncles running the business. When did you get involved? 1990. Uh, I had uh, gotten out of the service and I was living in Charleston, South Carolina at the time and uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I was thinking about going back to school and doing some other things. And my uncle called me and said, hey, you ever thought about going in the meat business? And as I was standing on a beach in flip flops and a Hawaiian shirt, I said, no. <laughs> but for a while, I started thinking about it and said, hey, that might be fun. We got together and I said, hey, look, if you like it, let's give it a try and see where it goes. And I really enjoyed working for him, learned a heck of a lot. And it was like getting a PhD, it really was. And like I said, we we're fortunate enough that Bethany and I had the opportunity to, to buy them out in 2003. And it was the best move we ever made. It's been a great ride. It has been. I'm guessing... You have an amazing recipe, if you will, for your sausages that makes it very popular. Yeah, we think so. I guess the the test of time is our reward. We haven't really changed the recipes since 1935. And I remember, gosh, I think it was back in 2010 or 11 already, uh, Bethany and I went over to Frankfurt, Germany. They have uh, what's called the EPA convention, which is a huge meat convention and equipment show. And they have it once every three years. And in conjunction with that, they have a a sausage contest and with over 1,500 entries from around the world. And I said, hey, you know what, let's take some stuff over there. It was just a last minute thing. We put it in a cooler 
and took it on the airplane with us. And we took seven products over there and won three gold medals and, and four silver medals. So it's like, hey. Without even trying. That's right. We'll be lucky to win anything. If we don't win anything, we don't have to tell anybody. <laughs> but so we're pretty proud of that. So that was really neat to do that. So like I said, I think, I think we're on the right track. So I'm going to ask a side note to this because your uniqueness, if you will, is your flavor of your product. So how do you protect that? Because obviously you've had many employees coming and going. It'd be easy for someone to pick up that recipe. How do you protect what makes you uniquely you? That's a great question. We have, we work with spice companies that we have proprietary blends that are made under non-disclosure agreements. And they send it to us just as rotwurst seasoning or hot dog seasoning. That's one one reason or one way that we can protect our proprietary recipes. Got it. So what happens in the plant? Give us a walkthrough of, of how how you make sausage, as the saying goes. All right. <laughs> it's really not as bad as you think. Uh, I think Winston Churchill said that there are two things you don't want to see made. One is loss and the other is sausage, right? <laughs> yes. But uh, it really isn't that, that bad. But we have what's called a, a HACCP program, which is a hazard analysis and critical control point, which is the backbone of our quality control. So from the time that we receive product until the time it is shipped, we monitor temperatures, quality throughout the entire process. Mm -hmm. So that's really how it starts. And we buy from the major packing companies in the Midwest, whether it be JBS or Prima Iowa, American Foods, Tyson. So that's who we buy our raw material from. It comes into our plant in 2,000 pound combos of combo bins, which are cardboard plastic lined bins that, that hold the beef or pork trimmings, which is basically all this is straight beef and pork. So we receive that into our warehouse. And then from there, it goes into our kitchen, our blending area where it gets formulated into the raw batter mix, whether it be brats, hot dogs, summer sausage. And then from there, it goes through our stuffing equipment where it gets stuffed into the casings, whether it be a fibrous or a natural or a cellulose type casing. And then from there, it goes through the cooking and smoking process. And then after it's cooked, fully cooked, and it goes through a cooling process in, in our holding coolers. And then from there, it gets packaged and then boxed and then shipped out to a local distribution center for, for sale at the local grocery store. How many employees do you have? We have 55 employees at the Lacrosse facility. And then we have another facility business we acquired last fall up in Maple Grove, Minnesota, which is TriStar Foods and Elliott Sausage. And we have 28 employees up there. So I, I guess to, to make all the wheels turn, we have roughly 85 employees. Yeah. So you're growing, which is fantastic. So I joke as I think about this, are you like the sausage king of lacrosse? <laughs> Maybe in my own mind. But then my friends joke about it and said, hey, here's the sausage king. I said, the king's in the house. Here we go. Right? But yeah, it's, it's fun to joke about it. It is. So then you own the sausage company. How I'm guessing you had to implement your own vision for how you wanted it to grow. So how has it grown from you owning it? That's a great question. Obviously, when we bought the business, we had a vision of trying to grow the business and, and continue to build on 
upon what we were able to take over, which is the legacy that my grandfather had started and his brothers and my uncles. And so there was already, how shall I say, a road that got us to that point to where we were back in 2003, which was great. Our whole mantra is pretty simple is that we provide value to the consumer. We put out the best quality products that we can at a competitive price. We're not going to be the cheapest by any means. We might not be the most expensive, but when you buy our stuff, it's going to be good. And that's been our mantra. And the other key to our success has been our employees, right? We've had just tremendous employees throughout the years. As a matter of fact, I've been with the company for 33 years and there's two people that we have right now that have more seniority than I do. Wow. And we've had people work there 50 plus years. Wow. Those two key components have been really the secret sauce of our success, mm-hmm. right? Is And we've been able to per- perpetuate that. But from a, a business strategy, I felt the best way to grow our business was a growth through acquisition. Mm-hmm. Because it's very difficult for a company like us to grow organically, particularly at the retail level. Brand recognition is so huge. If you take the beverage industry, for example, you just think back of how many different brand, huge brands have come and gone and how hard that is to get traction mm-hmm. at the retail level. So to grow our sausage business, which is what we really wanted to focus on, the best way to do that, in my opinion, was a growth through acquisitions. And we did that in 2016. We bought Schweiger brand and then Tristar and Elliott's here last fall. And along with that, growing our food service business, which was a big part of our business and hiring the right people, the right salesmen to to pursue new geographical areas mm-hmm. and expand outside our existing territory. So when you're acquiring, say it has its benefits because there's existing recipes, there existing customer base, and then it expands distribution of all of your products, right? So I'm guessing you acquire and you don't change recipes because you want to keep that customer base or do you? Like, are you doing it for capacity? Are you doing it to add to your product lines? What does the acquisition look like strategically for you? That's another great question market share. We wanted to pursue market share or we still want to pursue market share. It's a day-to-day pursuit that we have. And it depends, it really depends upon the product. Not Mm -hmm. necessarily we're going to say we're going to revamp this whole label, but there's certain things that we could bring to the table that maybe we can make this natural casing hot dog better. Maybe we can make this bratwurst better. Maybe, maybe what they have is it's working. We don't want to mess with it. Mm -hmm. So we did some things with the Schweiger brand. We, I think, upgraded the natural casing hot dog formulation, but we left the summer sausage the same uh, because it's the number one selling brand by volume in that Twin Cities market, Minneapolis, St. Paul. That's something you don't want to mess with. But if we can buy a brand or a company that, that helps us gain market share, that's something we take a look at. Yeah. And then the interesting thing that we were talking about before I hit record was as you're looking at now you have, is it two facilities, production facilities? Our Minneapolis facility is a distribution center. So we only have one manufacturing facility. Oh, okay. So along with that Elliott's acquisition, our current facility in La Crosse is pretty much at capacity. 
we're running two shifts. We're thinking about possibly adding a third. But that is a challenge that we face going forward is how do we grow our manufacturing capacity? And like I said, our current facility in La Crosse is reaching capacity if we haven't already. So in your head, you're going, okay, we can add a shift and hope to get the workforce. You can acquire a company that could produce out of somewhere else and expand your reach as well, depending on how strategic you're looking at it. But there's different ways that you have to look at how you continue to grow, is my guess. Yeah, absolutely. And from a manufacturing standpoint, we're looking to automate our processes as as much as possible, which at our current facility is somewhat limited because of space issues. The meat industry is, is still a very labor intensive industry. Manufacturing sausage hasn't changed from the beginning of time, but the equipment has. The principles are still the same, but buying modern automated equipment to help maintain or or expedite those processes is what we're looking for. But unfortunately, some of that equipment's really large and robotic arms putting finished packages into boxes and things like that requires a lot of space. So that's one issue we have going forward in our current facility. But acquisitions following our original business plan of a growth through acquisition strategy is something we're always looking for. Um, if we could find another regional manufacturer who has excess capacity that might be looking to take on a partner or sell the business outright, we're always looking for those opportunities that we could bring our product in and help fill out that plant from from a production capacity point. So it sounds like the sausage meat industry hasn't gone the way of breweries and like I had someone in here produced a protein powder. So you can have companies that white label produce, right? Just say, give us your recipe, we'll produce it and put your label on it. So I'm guessing that hasn't happened in the meat industry. No, it has. Oh, it has. Okay. And, And we right now do have partners that do manufacture certain products for us. Okay. Under our formulation and our proprietary blends, mm-hmm. which has been key for us to be able to continue to grow until we can bring some of that manufacturing back home, if you will. But yes, that is huge. Yes, it goes on. You'd be amazed at who's making product for, for everybody else. As a matter of fact, for, for, for a long time, we were making product for old Wisconsin. And then, so they're their competitor, but yet are they friendly competitors? Is, is there such a thing? But yes, there's a lot of, of uh, manufacturing that goes on what we call private label. Yeah. Or and coal packing, I should say. Sure. And that's another opportunity and numbers you would have to crunch of going, okay, if we exp- if we spend the money on a big expansion, could you actually package for, do, do some of that private packaging or co-packaging, and that would be a revenue source to offset that expense. Yeah, absolutely. It'd help you hit those fixed costs much faster. Yeah, for sure. And if you did build a a facility, that would certainly be part of the business strategy going forward. One of the things that we talked about, because I knew I had seen your, seen Bacalars out there with a sports team affiliated with it. It's the Vikings and the Twins, correct? So what caused you to become the, what's the title, the official... Sausage of? We were the official hot dogs in Minnesota Twins and the Vikings. We no longer have those sponsorships. We, gosh, we were a sponsorship for the Twins from 2016 through the first part of COVID. And then when 
they were playing baseball, but the parks were empty. Mm-hmm. We decided to drop the sponsorship and we decided that with the Vikings, this was our last year of the sponsorship as well. The sports sponsorships are great, and but they're expensive. And you do, there are great opportunities as far as selling the stadiums. You know, we can use the retail marks of the Vikings and logos at the retail level, which was huge in the Twin Cities market. But we did that in order to try and legitimize our brand and legitimize us as as a manufacturer in, in that Twin Cities metropolitan area, which was our big reasoning for wanting to buy the Schweiger brand. It's a metropolitan area of close to 3 million people with all the suburbs. And, and it was a great opportunity for us to grow our business. So the sports marketing at the time was huge. I remember when we took this Viking sponsorship, we were the first supplier at U.S. Bank Stadium. And we were able to, they had the Super Bowl there in 2018. So we're the fish hot dog of the U.S. Bank Stadium and the served at the Super Bowl. It was pretty mm. kind of fun to be part mm-hmm. of that. And, but yeah, the sports sponsorship at the time w- was, was an, a good part of our marketing strategy, but I think it did what we wanted it to do and it was time to move on to different types of marketing. Yeah. And, and just so the average listener understands. So there's different strategies as to why companies do that. In some cases, it's brand awareness. Did they know about you? So this, the desired outcome is they now recognize your name. There's other strategies, which is let's increase sales. Hopefully those go hand in hand. But sometimes if you're coming, if you're new to a market, it's just raising awareness of who you are. Right. And and all those, all, all the above what you just described is why we want to be part of it. And you're talking, it, it also came into to play with our, our plant capacity, right? So we were selling product to the stadiums at, let's say a discounted price over what our retail margin would be on a different style product. They were, we made specific products for the stadiums and it's, hey, we're selling this at a less margin than maybe our natural casing hot dogs. So does it make sense to continue to sell U.S. Bank and Target Field and, and be a, a sponsor of those great teams? Or do we want to focus on where our margin is, which is our natural casing product? And that's the the conclusion we came to. And it was a great partnership. We enjoyed every step of the way and both great organizations. But in, in business, sometimes certain strategies uh, run their course and, and that's what happened there. Yeah. So. that Those are business decisions Absolutely. made along the way. So, Absolutely. So in your timeline, let me go back to your timeline. There's a piece that we missed, which is the tornado. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I'm sure it would come back to you, but that painful memory. So you own Baclars down on South Avenue and where Three Rivers meet, tornadoes are not supposed to go. And they did. And so for the people that were in the community, then it was it came by Gunderson. It came by Kmart right in the middle of Lacrosse there. And so there was significant damage to your building. Yeah, that was as a business owner, you worry about a lot of things when you go home at night and but a tornado hitting your building in the middle of the cross was not one of them. <laughs> but we, my wife and I, Bethany, were coming back with the kids. We were visiting my sister in Milwaukee at the time. And it was a Sunday afternoon and we pulled in La Crosse. I said, you know what? I usually check the plant on the weekends or I always do. 
So let's just stop by and make sure everything's okay, the refrigeration and things like that. So we pulled into the parking lot and I looked off to the west and it was just black and green. I said, geez, there's a heck of a storm coming. So I ran in and we'd taken the minivan, which was Bethany's car. I said, oh, shoot, I left my keys at home, which I never do. So we got in the car and started heading home. And by the time we hit the quick trip on South Avenue there, it started raining. You could see wind gusts coming across. And then by the time we got home, which we just lived on the south side, it was like, geez, people were calling me and said, hey, a tornado just hit your building. There's bricks flying off and the roof's pretty much gone. I said, you're kidding me. So I said, okay, I got to go back into work. And as soon as I got there, where Bethany and the kids parked with the minivan, that whole corner of the wall came down with bricks. So had they, I hate to think what could have happened. Mm. Actually, I was looking all for us. Otherwise, I would have been inside the building and, and the kids and Bethany would have been there. So anyways, so yeah, I go down there and obviously so the power was out and we received significant damage to the building. And that was like an, oh my gosh, kind of moment. So now what do we do? And you realize, hey, we're going to be without power. And so what's going to happen to all our product and how are we going to build a go to work tomorrow morning on Monday. We have part of our HACCP plan and we have what's called a recall list with our key employees. So we activated the recall list and we talk about great employees. We had everybody there and we called Quick Trip and Transport Refrigeration and they borrowed us like 14 semis. So we offloaded all the product we had, worked all night, stored it, on semis and so we're able to save the product monday we didn't ship anything but we we're back in business on tuesday wow no uh, and so yeah so that was they talk about great employees that was huge and and then we had weezer brothers as a contractor came in we we're able to stabilize the building and and secure it enough to where the usda would allow us to go back to work and we we're making sausage again by friday so we hardly missed the beat and it was really certainly without challenges going forward from there to keep the, the building safe for manufacturing food. But we we're able to do that and able to really come out stronger than we were before the tornado because we had the opportunity to move into our new facility mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the industrial park. And looking back on it, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, <laughs> but... <laughs> But it was a good example of making lemonade out of lemons, right? You, you deal with the hand that's dealt and you make the best of it. And we were yeah. able to, to do that and actually thrive. I think that's the piece that gets forgotten about. So first and foremost, kudos to your employees because they recognize this right. is a, it's not life or death, but for the company it could be. If they didn't rally and assist, you're trying to ramp up manufacturing and you have insurance to deal with and then long-term plan of, okay, this is like the building was not salvageable, correct? Or at least financially didn't make sense to repair it. And so then you're having to make the decision of moving. So what did that all entail? <laughs> Going back in our business, um, our customers obviously rely on us every day for deliveries, right? And at the retail level and in the food service they need product on their shelves. So had we been out of business for weeks or months, it would have been devastating to our business. And and we would have lost that retail shelf space in a lot of areas. Customers get used to buying from our competitors. It would have been harder to get back. But yeah, so 
as far as the building goes. And it, like you said, kudos to our employees. They recognize that the necessity, right? Mm-hmm. But from a building standpoint, yes, all, all the above. And the building was damaged beyond a salvageable amount, which is what the insurance companies and, and the city, they have certain, if a building is damaged beyond a certain mm-hmm. amount, they're supposed to be rebuilt, right? Condemned and, mm-hmm. and torn down and rebuilt. So that was an issue with the insurance companies. In, in the end, we were able to say, look, you know what? We're going to do what we're going to do. And we were able to buy the building in the industrial park and we started building our new facility and we're able to work things out with the insurance company in the city and which all were good to work with. The city of La Crosse was great. Matter of fact, we had a lot of advice from LADCO, which Mm -hmm, was huge. Yep. And they helped us get into that facility. And one thing we wanted to make sure was that we rebuilt our facility in La Crosse. It was great that we were able to find that building from Dick Walls over at Walls Craft and we're able to modify it and move to our current location. Yeah. And now it's full. It is. Who foresaw that? Yeah. When we moved in 2013, I was like, geez, how are we going to fill this place, right? And for the past few years, it's been an issue as far as capacity. Yeah. So let's talk about, Is you talked about the automation of, mm-hmm. okay, let's try to use technology, if you will, to probably speed some things up and relieve some of the workforce shortages and challenges as you're trying to expand. Let's talk about workforce. What is it like trying to hire at your company these days? And what's that piece that makes them a great employee? Just a willingness to work. All right. Very simple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all we ask is that you show up on time and be ready to work. We'll take care of the rest. We'll train you. We'll provide you op- growth opportunities, career paths. So there has to be a willingness to want to to achieve and, and, and work and find a career from the employee. We'll take care of the rest. Mm-hmm. That's all we ask. But yeah, so it's, and it's, we talked a little bit about this earlier. The unemployment rate in, in Western Wisconsin right now is roughly 2.6%, if I'm right. Mm-hmm. And which is from an economic standpoint, full employment. And so that recruiting pool is, is pretty narrow. We have to, and, and and I've never been afraid of competition, but we're competing with other businesses in town for, for that 2.6%. And it really makes us better employers. It makes us better recruiters. And and we've been able to, to do that. It certainly hasn't been without challenges, but we are able to hire employees because of that. So I guess that's the upside of it. Yeah. One of the things we talked about as well as we were, as I was getting ready to hit record is what's happening in the the meat production industry. So how are you seeing, you were talking about consolidation happening and where do you see your self-position? So let me bring you up to speed of what we were talking about of where you are. Like there's the small mom and pop shops, there's large manufacturers like Hormel and where are you in this and where are their opportunities and where are their challenges? From a meat production standpoint or food service production, we're still considered a, a small manufacturer. Being a regional player, there are few of us left. And that's the good and the bad news. I can count on 
on one hand, what I would consider uh, regional sausage manufacturers in the upper Midwest. And as I had mentioned, you're either extremely large company like Tyson or Smithfield or some of the other manufacturers, or it seems like you're a smaller retail meat market. So it, it's created opportunities, um, but it also creates challenges. The opportunities are that it, believe it or not, it's created with less local brands or regional brands. It's created an opportunity for us to go after some of that market share from the bigger manufacturers. Going back to our business philosophy of quality and value, we certainly can't compete with Tyson on production mm. levels or even on, but we think we can provide a much better product. Mm -hmm. And and that's how we've been able to survive and grow for the past 88 years. Um, but and some of the challenges are that you're a smaller regional manufacturer. You don't get those economies of scale that the bigger guys get as far as and have the, the ease. Some of the bigger manufacturers, all they do is manufacture one product, a huge plant. Yeah. Over and over again. That's yeah. Right. Repetition. Yeah, that's right. And we're still what we call it what's considered a batch manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So more of a specialized manufacturer. And like I said, so it comes with opportunities, but also challenges. Yeah, because as you switch to a new batch, you probably have equipment cleaning that happens. So there's just labor that isn't necessarily captured in a in one product running through over and over again. Yeah, line changeover, we call it. That having said, we are big enough that we primarily concentrating on one product a day. We're able to at least take advantage of that. We set up the equipment in the morning and we'll run that all day, that particular product. And then obviously on the backside of that, through the packaging, they can set up our packaging equipment to do the same thing. And obviously that's what we try and do. Yeah. Sometimes, like you said, you have to stop and, and do a line changeover because you run out of a particular product, let's say. Yeah. And I assume that you're like on demand, whereas the demand for a certain quantity of products, you're not overproducing and storing. Is this literally it's going out the door and out to customers right away? Storage is an issue. And we lease a lot of outside storage space. Mm. The shelf life on our products are anywhere from 90 to 120 days. We do have sales histories and we anticipate peaks in manufacturing holidays, Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day. So we manufacture ahead to anticipate those increase in sales. Yeah, it's it's a balancing act. There are a lot of wheels. You talk to our production supervisors and our buyers and <laughs> they'll tell you that there's some real balancing act there to make that all work. So my common closer question is, what makes you passionate about what you do? A love of hot dogs. That helps. <laughs> no, I tell you, I wake up every morning and I love the challenges of being a business owner in this community offer. And at the end of the day, there's a, you always have problems, right? But there's a lot more good things going on than problems. And I thrive on those challenges. How are we going to grow our business? How are we going to increase our margins? How do we hire the right people? Those type of challenges, it's... And that's what I get up in the morning for. And, <laughs> and it's not about the bottom line either. Obviously, we're all in business to make money. and But it's there's more to it than that. It's really the bottom line is 
a gift package, if you will, but it's everything that, that goes involved into making profitable business that I really enjoy and when I get up for every morning and the people we work with and our customers that we have, it's just, it's been a great experience for us. And I, I have no interest in, in slowing down. Like I said, I get up every morning and get excited going to work. That's fantastic. You've been listening to Mike Bacalars. He is the owner, CEO, president of Bacalars, along with his wife, Bethany. And you have been listening to BizCast Greater Lacrosse. We'll catch you next week.